saw a slight look of concern on my students' faces as I walked up to the pulpit because they just realized they're about to be 20 to 30 minutes late for lunch today. Matt kind of gave me a time frame for like, oh, you know, here's kind of what we aim for. And I was like, oh, that's just, that's just like high school chapel. And they don't look any less concerned. We're about that point in the summer now where, uh, if being in the educational realm myself, really once you get past July 4th, things start to ramp up pretty quickly. So for teachers, administrators, we're already, at, the coming year is getting really close. Um, for, for students, maybe not so much so. They're, they're probably in that, that, that nice zone right in the middle of the summer where they're far enough in that they're enjoying the various activities that come with summer, getting out, riding their bikes, playing with friends, going to the pool, things of that nature. But school is still distant enough, you know, they don't have to start thinking about that yet. Uh, I, I was thinking as I was preparing for, for the message here today of, of uh, a scene from uh, the pool in the summer that I don't know, I don't know how many of us have actually experienced this, or if it's one of those things that's been used as a story or been told to us enough that we've kind of now embedded it in our own memories that we believe we've been in this position before. But I think if I, if I were to explain to you, you'd say, okay, yeah, I've, I've either done that or I know what you're talking about. Uh, maybe you've seen a, a group of kids standing by the, the pool, or maybe you were in this position once, right? Uh, it, it's early in the summer, and, and it's, it's not incredibly hot out yet. Maybe one of those days where you're not really certain you should be at the pool, but, but it's open, and, 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 and the pool's just recently been filled up, so the water is nice and cold, and, and, and you stood there at the edge of the pool with your friends, and you said, I'll jump if you jump. Okay, on, on the count of three, we'll all jump. You ready? Yeah, on the count of three. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Is it one, two, three, jump, or is it one, two, three? No, on jump, on jump. Three, then jump. Okay, here we go. Ready? One, two, three, jump. And what happens? No one jumps. You said you were going to jump. Well, you, I didn't jump because you didn't jump. Well, I didn't jump because you didn't jump. No one jumped. I don't know. You okay, let's do it again. All right, ready? On three, right? One, two, three, jump. No one jumps. <laughs> Why? Because no one jumped the last time. I'm not jumping if you're not jumping. Well, I didn't jump because you didn't jump. And, and it's, a, it's a, maybe a bit of a statement, either of one of a couple things, the coldness of the water and the expected rush, or a lack of faith in our friends. I know this guy well enough that he's not jumping. Now, what if it was reversed, though? Let, let, let's say that on day one of the pool, everybody stood there by the side, and they said, one, two, three, jump, and everybody jumped. All of them, they all jumped. Next day, they all jumped. The next day, they all jumped, and so on and so forth, all summer long. Maybe, maybe even as they grew up together for multiple summers, they always jumped. Would there be any doubt as to whether they could jump and know their friends were with them? No, because at that point, their trustworthiness, their faithfulness, a pattern has been established. And so they have no fear of jumping unless maybe it's perhaps the water itself. And so they, they readily jump. But what if after, after days and, and weeks and perhaps months of jumping, one day they didn't jump? You jumped. Found yourself in the water and all of a sudden now you're alone. and You're looking back and there are all your friends up on the side of the pool. They didn't jump. The pattern was, by, was broken. The dynamic shifted. Would it, would it create then at that point some doubt as to the trustworthiness of those who had in that moment abandoned you? Now, 
This is a small and very petty illustration of what we're going to look at today. But what happens? What happens when there is a shift in the dynamic towards one we trust? Truly trust. And what we believed about them seems to have failed. Now with humans, we, we somewhat expect and understand this. We understand that this will happen. But what happens when that person is God? This is the question that we have at hand in this psalm that we'll be studying today. Uh, the title I have for my message today is Delighting in the God Who Delights. Delighting in the God Who Delights. And if, if I wanted to extend it a little farther, it would be Delighting in the God Who Delights at all times. Or, George, I'm not sure if you would correct me on my grammar here. Perhaps it's always delighting in the God Who Delights. The main idea I want us to grasp today as we go through Psalm 44 is this, that we can have faith in a God who delights to show steadfast love to His people, even when that love does not seem readily evident. Let me repeat that for you. We can have faith in a God who delights to show steadfast love to His people, even when that love does not seem readily evident. Let's look at our psalm here today. And the first thing I want us to see in these first three verses of Psalm 44 is the works of a God who delights. The works of a God who delights. In fact, the, the psalm starts uh, by recounting God's actions here towards His covenant people, Israel. And it really starts on an encouraging note. If you read verse 1, it says, O oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds You performed in their days in the days of old. I say, I say that's an encouraging note because uh, I don't know if, if this at all comes to your mind, a verse from Judges chapter 2, verse 10, when it says, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. I mean, perhaps there's been a time when you've been going through like your Bible reading plan and you've gone through uh, the book of Joshua and, 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 and maybe through um, the, the Exodus and Joshua and the, the conquest and the settling in the land. And then when you get to the book of Judges and you read this phrase that there arose another generation that did not know the Lord, that it grieves your heart a bit. Because we know that God had enjoined the families of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to do quite the opposite, to teach them. In fact, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, something that I'm glad that here at Calvary we really remind ourselves often to be doing this in our homes. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 7, it said that they were to do this. You shall teach them, and that is your commandments, commandments of God, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And, and really, uh, maybe even more applicable towards what we're going to look at here in the first three verses of Psalm 44 and verses 10 through 12, it said this, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, he had, in, he had enjoined Israel to constantly be rehearsing his law and constantly be rehearsing his works, his acts. It's something they were supposed to be telling to their children and their children's children. And so it's actually really refreshing when we get here to the first verse of Psalm 44, and it says, we have heard what our fathers told us. So what were these works or deeds that God had done that they had been told of? Verses 2 and 3, it says, You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them, that is Israel, your covenant people, you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor by their own arms save them, but your right hand and your right arm in the light of your face. I might even really remind you of what he had said in Deuteronomy that he was going to do. If you look there in those two verses, there's an incredible emphasis on God's work. I mean, yes, it was the people of Israel who had gone into the land and had to uh, carry out the actions that they did, but it was, it was God's work. The words you or your are eight times in just two verses. In just two verses, it says eight times you or your. We see a contrast for the people of Israel with the condition of the other nations. Them the other nations were driven out and afflicted, but what was it that God did for His people? He planted them. He set them free. Another contrast we can see is the contrast between what God did and the capability of Israel. It says in verse 3, not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them. This is a a complete dependence upon their covenant God for salvation. It, it was seen from the very beginning of their, of their entry into the promised land, wasn't it? I mean, they stood there at, at the Jordan rivers, swollen with floodwaters, and how did the waters part for them to cross? Was it, was it through Israel's power? Was it through Israel's might? No, it, it was God who parted it and allowed them to walk on dry land, much like they had done going across the Red Sea. When they go to Jericho, did they, did they conquer Jericho by normal military means? No, God proposes what really is a unique, even strange plan. But if we want to make sure we understand that Israel must be dependent upon God's strength and that, yes, it may be their swords, but it is God's might that is going to win the day, they come to Ai. And because there was sin in the camp, a very a small city, Really nothing to be accounted much of, right? They didn't even send out the full strength of their army, and yet in that day they were turned back from their foes because there was sin in the camp and God's power did not go with them. It's established very, very early there as we read in the book of Joshua that if they are going to carry out the, the, the will that God had for them there in the promised land, it must be by His power. And that's what these, these fathers that we refer to here in verse 1 had relayed for their children, that it was God who had done this. Not their own sword, not their own arm, but the strength of God. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, of another scene. I, I gave you earlier the scene of, of the pool and the kids jumping. Uh, another visual that perhaps um, you, you've either seen yourself or can relate to, if you've ever seen a, a father accomplishing a task with his toddler's help. Now, there's something actually kind of funny about that statement in and of itself, isn't it? A father accomplishing a task with a toddler's help. If you've ever actually gone to do a task with a toddler, you realize that it's going to take probably twice as long, at least. Okay? But, but we do it anyway. Why? Because we, we delight in them, right? And so the, the, the toddler goes along with his dad. Maybe, maybe for Christmas he's been given one of those like little kids' toolboxes. I think I remember getting one of those when I was young. It's got the, 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 the little screwdriver and pliers, and it's got the little hammer, right? 
And so that, that little three, four, five-year-old child gets down with his dad and they're going to they're gonna do a job together. They're going to accomplish a task. And so his father wanted to make sure he knows how to hit that, hit that nail just right and not end up blasting his thumb. He, he kneels down and he takes his child and he puts his hand around his and they, they wrap that nail and the child is kind of filled with wonder and delight as he sees the nail kind of start to sink into that wood and they, they pound it in together. You go to the next one and pound another. Maybe they even secure a couple boards together and, and make some little project together. And, and when they're done, the child maybe runs back into his mom and says, Mom, Mom, guess what? I, I nailed the nails. I, I, I put some boards together. We made something. We know in reality, did he? I mean, his, his hand was on the hammer. But was it his strength that accomplished the task? No, it was, it was the strength of his father, right? It was the strength of his father. Why does the father go through this action? Not, not really concerned at all with whether he gets the glory or not here, but uh, why is he willing to let this child delight in this? Why? Because he delights in him. We see that here in verse 3. I think this is one of the most important phrases, not only in this opening passage, but really in this entire psalm. Look what it says here. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face and I, I really, really want you to grasp onto this, how it concludes this passage, this portion. It says, For you delighted in them. You delighted in them. This is a God who delights in his people, in his his covenant people. Now, lest they be filled with any kind of pride that's like, well, yeah, why wouldn't you delight in me? Okay? Let's remember what it also says over in Deuteronomy after he had called them to be faithful to relay these things to their children. It says there, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But, lest there be any pride, it says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. Brings the pride down a little bit, doesn't it? It's, it's, it wasn't because of you. It wasn't because you were great in number. No, you were the fewest. It wasn't because you had already accomplished something great. Remember, you, you, were, you were nothing. If we go all the way back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, he was just one man who, who tarried on for years without any children, right? This was nothing in him. Nothing in them. It was simply God's love. God's delight. It's why he says in Deuteronomy 7 8, after he's reminded them that they were the fewest all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. It's out of his love. He delights in them. But he does delight. What do, what do we call this undeserved covenant love? Grace. Grace. God's relationship with his people has always been built in his, his love and his grace. You think about this entire portion of Psalm 44 is drenched in the gospel thought and language. God's work in saving us can be told in the same language, couldn't it? Not me. Not anything I had done. Not anything special about me. Not because of the works of my hands. It's all God. None of it could be accomplished apart from Him. My salvation is by God and by God alone, by the power of his might. And so we can look through these three verses and we can really echo the same thing and we have the same message to tell to our children and our children's children. That we have this God who delights 
in love towards us. There's a couple of thoughts I have towards this week. First of all, is that we can, we can trust that we have this kind of relationship with God who delights in His work toward us. This is not a begrudging work, but a delight. We can be assured that because it was never based on anything in us or on anything that we could do, that it was all of God and is therefore steadfast. We proclaim that this is how God has saved us and is saving us and will save us. And so the question is, how do we then respond to this? How do we respond to this message that God delights in showing love towards us and that God has acted on our behalf in powerful ways? That's why I see our second thing here in verses 4-8. through Our second point is the response to a God who delights. What is our response to a God who delights? You see it in the words of the psalmist here when he just bursts forth into praise in verse 4. You are my King, O God. Ordained salvation for Jacob. He's, he's been told of God's steadfast love. He's been told of His delight in Him. And he's, he's, he's heard of the works that God has done. And when he contemplates them, he can't do anything but burst forth in praise to this God. You are my King. It's, it's both a response of praise and worship for who God is. And it's a response of faith and trust. When he says, ordain salvation for Jacob, you, you have saved, continue to save. I've seen that you have saved. I trust that you will continue to save. And I praise you and worship you because you are my king. But I also see here a response of action. Not just praise and worship, faith and trust, but really that praise and worship and faith and trust leads to a response of action. It says in verse 5, through you we push down our foes through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. Through you, we do these things. We've, we've seen what you have done in the past. We have faith and trust that you will continue to do this. So what do we do? We act upon it. We, we press forward. I'm reminded of the words of William Carey, who said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. When we look and contemplate the works that God has done and we consider that this is the same God who is still in covenant love with His people, we, we should be motivated to act upon it. To believe this is the same God with the same power and the same delight in doing great works and attempt great things for Him. Remind, remind of the fact that it's, it's not our power, but it's His. But it, it, it does no good, if I could say it that way, to just let it be, right? I mean, one, one of the things that's really challenging, I think sometimes about studying, say, theology, is if we're not careful, we can just sit and, and read and study and exult in these things, but then just leave it there. In fact, I often find myself challenged in that, that I, I may read a portion of the Bible or read some book of theology and be like, wow, that's God. He's great. And then close it up and set it aside. What should it do? It should propel us to action, knowing that this is the God who's behind us. I mean, think about what Jesus even told His disciples in Matthew 28, 18, 19. Very, very familiar verses. He says what? All authority is given Me on heaven and earth. Go therefore. All authority, all power is given to Me. So go. Do something with it. Believe that I delight to act in and through My people. And believe that there is delight in acting in and through me. He even finishes that with what phrase? I am with you always. 
I'm with you always. They, they were able to go forward, those early disciples, the early church, armed with that promise of God's power and God's presence, that he had all authority and was with them, with them always. What does this then lead us to do in verse 8? He says, in God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Because what happens is this, we see what God has done, we rejoice and press forward in faith that he will continue to work, and as he does, we boast in him and give thanks to his name forever. I think it just kind of creates this like wonderful, glorious snowball of delight in who God is, acting upon it, putting it to work, seeing him in action, saying, hey, that's God, that's what he's doing, and then going after it even more. So that he receives this ongoing thanks and praise forever. And I'm, I'm, I'm taking my own mind back to the illustration I gave you earlier of the child who delights in doing the work with his father, who delights in him, right? I mean, as that child walks away from there with his hand in his father's hand, where is, where is the face turned? Up towards his dad, right? And he's, he's full of delight in his relationship with his father and who his dad is. You hear young kids, they often will boast in their father and who he is. That's, that's my dad. Look what he's done. Look what we did. It was his strength. We carry that into our own relationship with God our Father as well. We need to actively engage in a relationship with God who delights in us as we delight also in Him. Now, it would be really nice if the word Selah or Selah or Salah, however you choose to, to pronounce it, there's multiple opinions, okay? It would kind of be nice if that was just like Amen or the end. Because I think, honestly, we would be able to go out of here with a lot of stuff to rejoice in. It would be, it'd be good, some good truth to contemplate. And it's, it's really actually super positive at this point. This is what God has done. This is what God will continue to do. He delights in us. We respond with delight in Him. Go, right? I say it would be nice. But if we desire to mature in our faith, we may very much need the rest of this passage. If we want our faith and trust in a God who delights to grow in depth and breadth, we may very much need the rest of this passage. Uh, I, over the last four or five years, I've, I've been involved in the leadership, the administration of the academy here, and, and in the process of that, I've had to interview any number of teachers and sometimes families who are applying to the academy. And, but as I'm interviewing teachers, faculty members especially, I would often ask them, hey, what would you do, and I'd lay out a scenario. What would you do if a student, fill in the blank. What would you do if a family, what would you do if you, fill in the blank. So what would you do? And I remember um, after a couple summers of doing that, one of my uh, school board members who had been involved with a, a larger organization before and had to do a good amount of, of hiring for them, he, he took me out uh, for lunch. Uh, we went and got sushi from La Bamba's. I don't know if there's anything more incongruous in the world. The fact that in the Midwest, which is a thousand miles from any ocean, we eat sushi at a Mexican restaurant. As so normal, Illinois. Um, we went there, we went there for lunch, and he, he kind of just laid out to me the way that they would go about interviewing candidates, and he said, Instead of asking, what would you do, what would you do, what would you do, he said, you need to ask, can you tell me about a time when? 
can you give me an example when? What steps did you take and what were the results? And I, I remember, I don't know if this is a... Teachers have this obligation to always do things three or four years after it's actually cool. Okay, but I remember at the time going, mind blown. That's a really good thought. Thank you for bringing me for sushi at a Mexican restaurant and telling me that. But, I, but all of a sudden it kind of became clear to me, anybody can just say they're going to do something. Oh yeah, in that circumstance, this is what I do. In that circumstance, that's what I do. Anybody can say that. Talk is cheap, right? What, what have, you, have you actually done that? I think the, the rest of the passage here kind of puts us in a position where we can look at verses 1 through 8 and say, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I, that's what I would do, but what about when it's actually tested? Have we done that? Will we do that? So the third thing I want us to see here as we go into the rest of the passage, verses 9 through 26, is the test of our faith in a God who delights. We've seen the works of a God who delights in His covenant people. We've seen that the response to the works of that God is delight. We get delight in a God who delights. But what about the test of our faith in a God who delights? Now, I'm not going to actually read all of verses 9 through 26, but here just a summary of what it says. It says here in verse number 9, but, but you have rejected, disgraced. You have not gone out. You have made us turn back. Use the word slaughter. Scattered us. You sold your people for a pittance, no great amount. Use the words taunt, derision, Scorn, byword, laughing stock, disgrace, shame. And the winner? Who's the winner in all this? The taunter, the reviler, the enemy, the avenger. Does this sound like a condition of one in whom God delights? Does any of that sound like a relationship of delight? <laughs> that, oh, the God who delights in us has done this. Now, we might, be, we might be tempted to say, well, it's because, and you start, I mean, if you've studied through Old Testament history and you know Israel's heritage, I mean, you, you probably immediately start filling in some blanks. Well, it's because they turned to Baal and they turned to these false gods and they built altars to them and they sacrificed to them and they forsook their covenant God. And so, yeah, because of that, he has done this. But in this passage, in this passage, I want you to notice something, that the psalmist is actually making this plea to God based uh, from, from, from a seeming position of, of integrity. Look in verses 17 and 18. He says, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Now, usually with Israel we'd say, Yeah, right. It sounds like complete description of your history. Okay, but notice this too. In verses 20 and 21, it says, If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For He knows the secrets of the heart. So, so it, it seems as though this, this person who's writing here, the author, is saying, we haven't turned back. We, we haven't gone away from our God. We haven't forsaken His worship. If, if we had, I mean, He calls upon God's omniscience. If we had, wouldn't He know it? 
You can't sneak one past an omniscient God. If that was our condition, God would know it. And then, yes, uh, these things would make sense. And yet, he says in verse 22, yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The commentators believe that the person is writing here on behalf of a faithful remnant. That while Israel, by and in large, has forsaken God, that there is a faithful remnant who is not. And yet, in spite of their faithfulness to God, they're going through many of the same trials and tribulations, the harsh circumstances, as all the rest. And so they find themselves here in this position saying, hey, look, we, we haven't turned from you, and yet this is going on. Yet for your sake, we're being slaughtered. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. Let me ask you this. Is it possible that God's people can be living for the sake of God's name and yet run into circumstances that make them seem to lose sight of His steadfast love? Is it possible that God's people can be living for the sake of God's name and yet run into circumstances that make them seem to lose sight of His steadfast love? And, I'll be honest, I, I probably snuck a couple words in there just to, in a way, appease my own conscience or my own knowledge about myself. The words, seem to. But what if I just read it this way, because I think this represents so often where my own heart is. Is it possible that God's people can be living for the sake of God's name and yet run into circumstances that make them lose sight of God's steadfast love? Is that possible? I think the answer is yes. In fact, I would say to anyone who has walked through life, the stuff of life, any length of time, the answer is yes. There are times that we can find ourselves in circumstances that cause us to lose sight of the God who delights in us. The God of steadfast love. Now, let me pause for a quick warning here. Against a, a, a mild case of what we might call the prosperity gospel. Uh, you know, the prosperity gospel that if you just name it and claim it and you, you give lots to God, He'll give lots back to you. And the more you throw in, the more He throws back. I used to teach a Sunday school class, and that Sunday school class knew that a certain very smiley-faced prosperity gospel preacher was my great nemesis, even though he didn't know I existed. And I truly hate his gospel, because it is no gospel. It's a false gospel. And yet, I know for myself, if, not, if I'm not careful, I, I fall into what I might, I, I might call, again, to let myself off the hook a bit, a mild case of the prosperity gospel. And by mild case, I simply mean this. I assume that anytime something in my life doesn't go the way I want to, that it's because somehow I haven't done enough, or that God owes it to me because of what I have done, or that God's angry with me because I haven't checked enough boxes, or that if I will just go check more boxes, the circumstances will change. In all reality, in those moments, what am I actually practicing? In a lot of ways, I'm practicing a prosperity gospel. We have to caution ourselves against that. But, but, but with that in mind, is it possible though, is it possible that this, this individual writing here and we ourselves might be even keeping that thought in check and, and not be pursuing that line of thinking at all and yet still 
feel in the depths of hard circumstances that somehow God is distant and silent. That we might echo with the author here, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Your word says that he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And yet you seem to be sleeping. Wake up. Don't reject us forever. Why are you hiding your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? It says here, because our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. The whole of our being feeling just overwhelmed with the grief of the moment. Is it possible that that even with someone who is serving God, that we can get to a place where our circumstances are overwhelming to the point that we feel that way? My answer would be yes. I, I would say to you that I have found myself in circumstances like that where I, I could not understand what God was doing and I could not feel His presence near and I cried out to Him that way. And I, I would simply say this, aren't you glad that God recorded these psalms of lament for us? Aren't you glad that God recorded these for us? I mean, yes, He's working through human authors like, like David or here, the sons of Korah. But God inspired His Word through His authors. And I think what He opens up to us here is the opportunity to be real and open and honest in crying out to God. I think one thing that's really good to remind ourselves of as we look at this passage right here is that even though the author is struggling with some truths about God, he is still turning his eyes towards God. By grace, he is still wrestling his way towards God so that he ends with the appeal that God would always have us end with. And we see it in the final verse, in the final phrase, where it says, Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. He feels as though God is sleeping. He feels as though God is rejecting. He feels as though God is forgotten. And yet, even in that moment, he's not going to just throw in the towel, turn after other gods, and hope that they do better. No, instead, he keeps, by God's grace, by God's grace, he keeps his eyes fixed on God. And in spite of it all, he says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. He clings to the one thing that never changes. A God who delights in showing steadfast love. There are times that even then our heart is not always assured. Even then our circumstances cause us to doubt. So what do we do? What do we do in those circumstances? What do we do when our covenant God seems to be sleeping? Or seems to have rejected us or forgotten our affliction? We lay hold on to His steadfast love. Reminding ourselves that this is the God who revealed Himself to His covenant people as the I Am. Not just the, I have been, will be, I might be, I am. This is who I am in my character. And we, we might call back, but it doesn't seem like it right now. What do we do in those moments? Well, I think this psalm has actually given us a few practical ways to, to help ourselves in that moment. If we just look back to what our, our, our primary points were here, our main points. First, we can recount the works of a God who delights in steadfast love. I mean, do what the psalmist said his fathers had done for him. O oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed. If you're having trouble in the moment seeing what God is doing, go back. Go back over, over your life. Look and see how God has been working in the past. And say, okay, 
That God doesn't change. That God is still on the throne. That's my God. He does great things. He delights to show His steadfast love towards His people. And then, and then our second point, we respond by delighting in that God. Respond with praise and thanksgiving and delight in the God who delights in showing steadfast love. Take time and just praise Him for who He is and let, let the words of God about Him just wash over your mind, wash over your soul as you rehearse who God is. And in and, and all honesty, get back at it. Like You may not feel like it in that moment, but take action. Go do those things by which God shows His power, shows His might, shows His steadfast love. Stay engaged in the fight. Keep seeking Him. Keep ministering. Because remember, that isn't your power. That's His. And it will remind you of His active love in and through you as you see Him continue to work. But then this, this last thought. The test of, of faith in God's steadfast love. By, by grace, have faith in the God who in all circumstances is faithful and steadfast love. And here, in this one, we have what is the greatest evidence of that steadfast love. That is His delight. Even though we may not be sensing it. Even when it doesn't appear evident. You're tempted to doubt. Here's what it is. Does verse 9-22 through 22 remind you of anyone? I mean, when you read through words like rejected and disgraced, slaughtered, taunted and derided, does it remind you of anyone? Well, you might say, okay, yeah, David, David, remember? He wrote some songs about that. He was feeling that, David. Or, or Israel. Obviously, even this remnant here, Israel's felt that before. There have been times they were taunted by their enemies. Can you think of one who walked through those same footsteps? Who was sent to his own and his own received him not? Who was rejected by them? I mean, those verses, you have been made like a sheep for slaughter. Does that remind you of anyone? Who was disgraced and shamed on the cross while the very people he came to save mocked and spit at him and scorned him. Does this remind you of your Savior? If you ever doubt the steadfast love of God for you, remember that Jesus endured all of this to redeem you. Take the charge of Hebrews 11.2 to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. The God who delighted in His Son. And his son, who while living on earth as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, heard the words, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God delighted in him, even though his path was not easy. And he delighted to do the will of the Father so that you might be redeemed. I mean, He went through all of this shame and despising and rejection, even to the cross, so that nothing could separate you from the love of God in Christ. As Paul wrote in Romans, not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, Paul quotes this here. He doesn't run from this. No, he identifies with it. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And what is it that Paul says next? In all these things, 
we are more than conquerors. All those things that would, would, if we're not careful, cause us to doubt the reality of God, to doubt the steadfast love of God, to doubt His presence with us. No, when we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and the fact that He walked through all of those things to the cross, died on the cross to redeem us from our sins, to make it possible for His Spirit to live with us and bring us into relationship with God. All of those things that we would fear are conquered. We are more than conquerors through Him. In fact, I love the fact that it says this, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. I mean, what's, what's the path that I would chart for myself around all these things? Besides all these things? Above or under? Anything but these things? And yet, what does he say? In all these things, we are more than conquerors. And how? It finishes with the same way that we started out. Through him who loved us. Through his ongoing, overpowering, steadfast love that he delights to show in and through us. Which is why Paul can say at the end that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you come to the place that God seems distant and His love doesn't seem real, fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes on Him and see that for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. And He's seated at the right hand of God, having put all these things under His feet. And that His Spirit abides in you. And that through Him, through His love, you're more than conquerors, even when it doesn't feel like it. Let me encourage you, Calvary, to take time this day, this week, in your home, in your relationships, to to tell each other of His steadfast love towards you. Because there are times that we forget. Take take the example that was given to us just in verse 1. Our fathers have told us of these things. Parents, when you go home today, take time around the table to discuss God's steadfast love. Remind your children of times when you've seen it evident. And say, that's our God. That's our God. He's done these things. He will continue to do these things. He never changes. In community, delight in the God who delights in you and in showing steadfast love towards you at all times. Let's pray. Father, I praise You for Your steadfast love. And I praise You that that steadfast love is Your delight. You're not begrudging in this. It's, it's not as though you look on us and say, well, I guess I owe it to them. I guess I have to do this. I, I guess I promised it, and so now I have to fulfill it. That's not your way at all. It's your delight. And if there was ever any doubt about your delight in showing us in ste- uh, your steadfast love, it's erased by Calvary. We can see Jesus Christ going through the shame and rejection of mankind, enduring the pain of the cross, overcoming sin and death to bring us in relationship with You, our God and our Father. Give us Your your Holy Spirit that empowers us to delight in You, to work and labor in and through and for You, for Your glory, and that sustains us even in times 
when your steadfast love doesn't seem readily evident. Father, I, I pray that you would, in those times, by your grace, protect us from those thoughts. Refresh to us thoughts of your steadfast love. Remind us that you are the God who never changes and delights in showing your steadfast love towards us. We pray in your name. Amen.